Welcome to the FNL podcast. Our guest today is David Barnett. Currently, his uh, position at Master Fluid Solutions is Senior VP and General Manager for North America. Welcome to FNL Webcast, David. Thank you, Vicki. I'm happy to be here. That's great. So uh, let's start the interview by uh, asking you a little bit about yourself. Um, you now have a North American role, but in the past, you actually had a global role within Master Fluid Solutions. So when was this shift? Uh, when did it occur? So, yeah, I've, uh, I've always been based in North America, but I've actually held a few global roles for Master Fluid Solutions. Uh, just about a year ago, we went through a restructuring as we grew as a business and uh, divided the company into four different business units. So we have our, our home uh, headquarters here in North America, which I'm now leading. Uh, and then we have a business unit in Europe, uh, China, and then another APAC business unit that serves the rest of Asia outside of China. And Master Fluid, what do you what do you produce and what do you sell? And basically, what industries do you serve? Sure. So we are, uh, you know, especially uh, chemical manufacturer. We are focused on lubricants for machining and grinding for metalworking. Uh, we have a line of products that are primarily water-based uh, that go into every industry from automotive to aerospace, general industrial. Uh, and then we also have a product line that's for the uh, stamping and forming pipe uh, and tube manufacturing uh, that we acquired a few years ago, the Weedalit product line that was based in Germany. And during this time, David, not only geographically have you held different positions, but you've also ha held different uh, roles, right? You started uh, as in the training division of Master Fluid? Yeah, you know, 30 plus years ago as, as a young uh, professional, I actually came from a training and development background and I joined Master uh, helping put on seminars for our end users and our distributors who sell and service our products. So it was a great foundation to learn about the company, to learn about the industry. And from there, I went into uh, sales roles, business development roles, and ultimately into product management and marketing, which was my first global role, is working with our teams around the world on uh, you know, our product portfolio, our uh, go-to-market strategies, and then, um, as we continued to grow, I moved into an operations and supply chain role, uh, which I think is really kind of what we're talking about today. It was, uh, it was good timing uh, to learn about supply chain well ahead of the uh, pandemic, but we kind of set the foundation with our sales and operation planning process. We brought in some good people at our different uh, units around the world that have really helped us kind of navigate the past few years with the supply chain challenges. And I was going to say, you've, you've, you've done a bunch of roles and 30 years. Um, what would you say have been the largest changes that you've seen in the industry? Yes. So, I mean, I will say from my perspective, 
um, you know, one phenomenon we see is consolidation. So if we look at, you know, who the major players are, there's been a lot of M&A activity, both, you know, at every step in the supply chain. So from our suppliers uh, to our competitors to uh, the dis distribution network that we sell through. So that consolidation has been a, a big impact on the industry. Um, tell us about the specific challenges you encountered during the pandemic and how did you overcome them? Yeah, so, um, you know, the biggest challenge, right, was, um, first of all, keeping our people safe. Uh, so so that's always our top priority as a privately held company who feels that we're successful because of our people and our culture and the way we operate as a business. Our first step was taking actions to keep our people safe and healthy. Uh, we did things like split split teams where not everybody was in the building at the same time. Um, you know, and that was the same around the globe. We had people working from home whenever possible. Uh, you know, so that was our first step. And then once we got past that and knew that we had to continue to manufacture because we were essential to our customers, to their ability to produce products that were needed, whether it was, you know, uh, medical supplies to, to fight the pandemic or whether it was just you know, getting the economy going um, after the pandemic, we knew we had to continue to supply our customers. So that was that was our first focus. And then, you know, as the economy returned, as things started to open up, um, you know, we had things like uh, the freeze in Texas that interrupted the supply of raw materials to us. We had logistics challenges, whether it was availability of containers and delays at ports or um, just extended lead times from trucking companies and suppliers. So that was a challenge. You know, our products, like, like much of the people listening, you know, our lubricants are big and bulky and tough to move around. Uh, so, you know, those ocean-going containers are important to us. It's not easy to uh, FedEx or DHL a product overnight. You know, we have to rely on these ships and the ports. So, um, you know, we were fortunate that we had manufacturing locations around the world that could continue to serve the customers locally there. And we didn't have to worry about a lot of uh, international logistics, except for some critical raw materials. So one of the things that you pointed out in your article about lessons from the pandemic is basically local sourcing or reshoring. Um, tell us tell us what experiences you can share uh, in in that area. So, you know, because we've always tried to follow our customers and be close to them because, you know, the long lead times are, you know, really wasteful, expensive, time consuming. So we've tried to put manufacturing closer to our customers, you know, with our plants in China, uh, India, uh Thailand uh, and other arrangements that we have, we've always tried to be close. The thing that wasn't always there for us was the um, supply base. We couldn't guarantee that we could get the same materials or uh, the same materials at the highest level of quality that we require. Uh, so we've worked hard at that by working with our suppliers to build out 
the capability to purchase raw materials closer, closer and then qualify those through our labs. So typically, David, uh, uh, one formulation, how many, how many components would that have? Yeah, unfortunately, our, uh, our formulations tend to be complex. They're water-based products. They have to be multifunctional. Uh, so, you know, it's not unusual to have anywhere between 10 and 25 components in a formulation, uh, you know, to deliver the performance that our customers expect. So that's, that's quite a bit. It is. It is. And, uh, you know, you can have 24 of those components, but if you don't have the 25th, you can't manufacture it. So, uh, you know, that's put some stress on our supply chain and procurement groups. Now, your your manufacturing plants in Asia, would one country specialize in a certain product or would they be basically like doing the same thing, supplying to a specific customer in that country? Yeah, uh, they would they would all produce very similar products. The mix of products might change depending on the local markets requirements and, uh, you know, the list of customers that we have in that region. But for the most part, they are, you know, the majority water based metalworking fluids, um, you know, some stamping and, and forming it fluids, a lot of rust preventatives. Obviously, that's important in uh, Asia given the climate and as, as products get, you know, finished goods get transported uh, mm-hmm. to the ultimate end user. No, no shipping is, although you, you manufacture regionally, shipping still has to occur at some point. And, and that's been a particular challenge, not just to you, but to everyone. Um, kind of as the pandemic happened, uh, those shipping containers weren't necessarily in the location where they needed to be as uh, as manufacturing started back up. So, you know, that was kind of the first issue. And then it was just availability, you know, really the law of supply and demand. There was a lot of demand in, in one particular part of the world and not enough supply. So that drove costs up. Uh, so, you know, we saw the cost of container going between North America and Asia uh, go up three to five times what had been pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that was an issue. We saw the lead times go up where, you know, we had to air freight materials, materials that nobody wants to air freight uh, from one location to the next to, to make sure that we kept customers running. How do you normally ship your products? Do you ship them in drums or do you ship them in IBCs? Uh, Both drums and IBCs. Uh, The majority still gets moved via drums, but that IBC business uh, continues to grow. And uh, wow, Uh, air freighting something is going to be very expensive, especially if a lot of it is fluid, right? And then um, basically lubricants are a little bit touchy too, because there are, there, there's labeling issues. Uh, uh, Do you see that uh, as a problem that came up or, you know, basically the airline said, no, it's safe enough to, uh, to put it on board. Oh no. Yeah. We, we had plenty of issues with that and lots of, uh, 
um, you know, phone calls and conversations with uh, customs agents and uh, making sure that they had the right information. Uh, you know, one of our focuses has always been on uh, health and safety. So, you know, we have uh, a global leader here in Perrysburg, Julie Thomas, that works with, with our teams around the globe to assure that we're compliant, that we have the proper labeling. But, you know, the airlines and the customs agents who handle it, you know, aren't necessarily familiar with our types of products. So there ends up being a lot of education along the way and helping them understand that, yes, the product is properly labeled. Uh, yes, it is safe for transit. Um, you know, so it just requires a little extra handholding on our part. Would you say the crisis is over or is it still going on? Supply chain oh, I think crisis. we're gonna, we're, yeah, we're gonna see ripples from this for a long time. Um, you know, it's we've seen kind of starts and stops, right? Things get better. Uh, you know, the supply of materials gets better, and and then you know, as we work to quickly fulfill orders, uh, we get an interruption again or a delay in logistics. So, you know. I, th I think, you know, we've got a year plus before things get back to normal, if there ever is a normal, a pre-pandemic normal again, because I think things are changing systematically, right? People are doing things different, just like we talk about trying to localize wherever, wherever possible. Manufacturers are trying to shorten their supply chain. Um, you know, the just-in-time model really isn't working anymore. We need to be more agile. And, and react to the changing environment and changing customer needs. So, you know, I don't know as we ever go back to the way it was before, uh, but hopefully it gets a little more stable as we move through 2023. Well, just in time worked for more than 20 years, right? Right. And, and then it didn't work. Right. <laughs> so uh, all it takes is a pandemic to change the way we've been doing business for the last 20 years. Yeah, and I think, um, right, we could go back to just in time, we might be able to get there, but I think it's just opened a lot of eyes that there are inherent risks to that model, right? Um, you know, it could be a pandemic, it could be a hurricane like we're seeing hitting, hitting Florida, it could be droughts in Europe that dry up the rivers that are used for transportation of material. There's plenty of risks out there. So I think people are trying to figure out how do they make their supply chains more, uh, as I said, nimble and uh, reactive to a changing uh, global economy. Yeah, and it looks like, David, people are talking about globalization being dead and regionalization or localization coming to the fore. Do you agree with that idea that people are less into globalization nowadays because of what's just occurred in the last two and a half years? Yeah, I, I really don't. Uh, you know, I think it's still a global economy. We're just too connected, right? You know, uh, the flow of information, the flow of materials it is, we're not going to close those walls off. We're still going to be a global economy. But we're going to change things so we can better, you know, maybe be more self-sufficient in a particular region. Um, but, you know, it's 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 a free market. Uh, things are going to shift over time. And, uh, you know, you can't do 
one thing in one region and something completely different in another region because that flow of information is there. So people understand what's going on. Yeah, yeah, and and basically, just in time was an innovation by the Japanese automotive industry, and the idea behind it is reduce inventory, reduce cost, and it looks like today. The emphasis is less on cost reduction and more on just having enough material to supply your plant and keep it running. And and a lot of automotive, especially in the automotive sector, that's been a real challenge and still is a challenge. I expect it's going to be a pendulum, right? You know, just in time, maybe went too far. Uh, you know, we can't have excess inventories and inefficiencies everywhere. So we have to find this happy medium. Um, but yeah, JIT, you know, has really um, impacted the auto manufacturers. You know, first of all, the chip shortage uh, really impacted uh, the manufacturers. The, the latest article I just read was that Ford um, here in the U.S., their top selling vehicle is the Ford F-150 pickup truck. You know, they should have everything focused on that and being able to produce it. The last thing that shut down their ability to ship trucks is they couldn't get the blue Ford Oval to put on the front of the truck, that they had supply chain issues with that. So they actually stopped shipping trucks because of that. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Uh, unbelievable. Where was it made is the question. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 They don't they don't share those details. But I just thought that was amazing that that could stop the shipment of automobiles. But we actually have bigger challenges than just missing a logo on the front of your truck, right? It's actually electrification is a very big challenge for not only the automotive industry, but the entire, I would say, um, the entire world. I mean, are we really going to electrify? And if we are, what kind of impact would that have on your products, your company and you know, and the future of your business. It's, it's going to affect uh, a lot of manufacturers around the globe. It's certainly going to affect lubricant manufacturers like us. Um, you know, I'm not sure of the timeline. I, th I think there will be more and more EV vehicles. I don't think there's any doubt to that. Um, you know, we've seen different prediction, predictions on, you know, when, mass adoption of EV vehicles will happen. And I think it varies depending on governmental policies and incentives and, and manufacturers' commitments to EVs, but it, it's going that way. So we're going to see, you know, the machining and grinding related to internal combustion engines decrease. It'll still be out there for the foreseeable future, but it's certainly going to be on the decline. And we'll see that shift to other types of, of products. There's still the the um, suspension products, the uh, forming tied to body panels and things like that will still happen. But there's going to be more em emphasis on the electrical systems, on the batteries, on the EV fluids for cooling uh, those batteries and electrical systems. And then, you know, mining. Uh, so, yeah, we won't be uh, mining as much. Uh, oil and gas maybe, but we'll be mining a lot more lithium and other minerals that are required for the batteries. So, uh, you know, mining uh, equipment producers are going to see their business continue to grow. Would this mean that Master Fluids business model, even it's uh, the products that it sells today, 
has to change. To some degree, you know, but that's always always been the case for us. You know, we we feel like we win through innovation. You know, we have to make our customers' manufacturing process uh, more efficient. Um, you know, help them make sure their machines last long, that their operators are safe. Uh, so that basic philosophy and business model doesn't change. It just changes the the product definition of what types of products we need to produce uh, to support those customers. So, you know, we'll, we'll continue to invest in new products, new technologies, and we'll grow where our customers are growing. Um, you know, one of our focuses is aerospace. So we've invested a lot in going through the approval process for aerospace. It's very stringent. Uh, there's a lot of requirements, but we kind of understand what test methods are required, uh, what product characteristics, what chemical composition is acceptable. And that knowledge and that understanding is going to help us, whether it's in growth in aerospace industry, uh, the electronics industry, or EV vehicles. How different, David, are the needs of the aerospace industry compared to the automotive industry where, you know, being based in Ohio, you a big part of your business, would, at least in North America, would be for the automotive industry. You, you know, it is a big portion uh, supports the automotive industry, but but we have a significant portion of our business tied to aerospace. And, and actually, uh, you know, Ohio was the home of the Wright brothers. So there's a big aerospace uh, history here uh, in Ohio. And, you know, we, we have... Uh, Again, we're a global business, so we have relationships with Boeing and Airbus and, and others. Um, you know, the biggest issue there is they focus on reliability and material integrity, uh, because when you build a plane, you know, you want it to last for a long time. You, you don't want unexpected surprises. So, you know, the focus there is on how do we make sure that the parts that they machine and grind are uh, of the highest integrity. Uh, that the lubricants that come in contact with them uh, only help. They don't hurt uh, that material integrity. So there's a lot more testing required in producing a product for aerospace than there is for automotive or general industrial. Yeah, and I and I mean, I, except for the pandemic, I mean the uh, the projection for the uh, for the travel industry and even cargo. Uh, and, you know, anything air related was really very impressive. And uh, I guess now demand is picking up. So uh, people feel like it's getting back to normal. But um, do you see it that way right now that the 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 uh, aerospace industry has picked up? Because it seems like the automotive industry to a certain degree has started to pick up. And it's just really the hiccup in supply chain that's been really hindering them to going full blast. Yeah, no, certainly uh, the aerospace business is picking up. And I know, you know, as we go through our budgeting process and work with our customers on theirs, uh, they see, you know, demand only continuing to grow as we move into next year. So aerospace will definitely continue to grow. I think it gets back to that globalization, you know, that it's a global economy. It's not going anywhere. So people want to fly uh, from, from one region to the next and even, you know, more travel within a region. You know, if you look what's going on in China and APAC, uh, 
you know, people are just more mobile in general. So uh, that means there's more planes, more flights, which means uh, manufacturers are having to produce more parts. Yeah. Um, and I guess before we, uh, we close off, David, I'm just wondering um, your experience in, in Asia, especially, um, how different is this region from your perspective compared, for example, to Europe and North America? What makes this region different from all of them? You know, I think I think the biggest thing is the rapid, I guess, maybe maturing of the industry. Uh, right, that there's there's a lot more com- competition. There's a lot more. Um, you know, I would say there's probably a lot more innovation happening in Asia uh, than there is the rest of the world, and, and I think that comes from the competition, right? You know, there's a lot of bright people. Uh, there's a lot of very entrepreneurial people that are constantly looking for a better way to do something. So with that higher level of competition comes innovation. Um, you know, so I think that that forces all of us, whether you're a global manufacturer like us or a local manufacturer, uh, you know, to respond quickly and, um, you know, put your best products and, and best service offering forward in Asia. And finally, last question. I saw on LinkedIn that Master Fluid is looking for a lot of people, especially in North America. How do you sell young people to joining our industry? How do you make it attractive for people to to choose lubricants over other industries? Yeah, yeah, it's not the most glamorous industry, you know. It's not it's never on the top of anybody's list unless you happen to be a, you know, have a have a history of of lubrication and maybe somebody somebody in your family that's worked in in one of these companies. Uh, so, so for us, it, it's talking about doing the right things, you know, how you treat your people, how you treat your customers. Our basic philosophy is, you know, uh, living by the golden rule, treating others how you want to be treated. And that means helping make others successful. And I think the pandemic of all the negative things that happened, it did highlight a little bit about how important manufacturing is. Uh, to all of us, or wherever we are around the world. Uh, so we are seeing some interest. There's a big maker movement that we talk about here uh, where, you know, young people are looking to create creative things. You have stories like Elon Musk, you know, that that's just become this huge success with Tesla and doing things differently. So I think, you know, that opens some eyes that people can actually, you know, go out help make something that's physical, that helps the world. And, uh, you know, that's intriguing to, to people instead of working in a service industry or, or something that uh, there's not as much tangible with what you do every day. So that's what we talk about. Um, you know, some people are going to choose whether they want to go that path or not. And there's, there's people like me that, uh, you know, have seen the difference it's made. Um, in in the lives of our customers, in the lives of our employees in different parts of the world, and and really are committed to uh, continuing to advance the lubrication industry. And you've had an exciting job. You've traveled all over the world. I mean, uh, right now you're focused on North America, but you still, you know, have to deal with your teams all over the world. And 
you know, yeah. what's your takeaway from that? I mean, did you expect this when you joined the company? Uh, back I, in I the did 90s? not. No, I've been places that I would have never imagined going, um, you know, and, and manufacturing doesn't always happen in those glamorous places. But, uh, you know, there's still very interesting places with a lot of history and culture, especially in Asia and Europe, as my job has taken me there. Um, you know, and it, it's exciting. You know, you get to meet people from different backgrounds, but, you know, in the end, we're all very similar. You know, we're doing what it takes to take care of our family and, and be, you know, safe and healthy and happy. And, um, you know, so so that's that's the joy in that global travel is working with the, with the people around the globe and seeing their lives get better. Yes. And, and and really, Dave, David, I have to say personally, it's people like you that really make a difference. I mean, I've seen how, you know, uh, in your role as the chairman of the ALIA professional subcommittee, you know, the time you devoted in making sure that we deliver uh, education courses to our members, um, you know, free of charge, because basically it's a it's not a paid job. Uh, so you have to do it on your own time, right? Well, you know, it's it's important. And, you know, I came from that training and development background. You know, I've, uh, I like to think of myself as a lifelong learner. You know, you have to continue to learn. So, you know, I want other people to have those same opportunities. And uh, it's important to me. So I know others have helped me out along my way. I want to I want to help out as many people as I can. That's great. Well, thank you so much, David, for your time. And we really appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again sometime, uh, maybe at the next ILMA meeting. Yeah, yeah, let's hope so. Let's hope so. And thank you, Vicki. You certainly, uh, you know, provide a lot of information that all of us use in our daily lives. So thanks for, for giving me this forum and uh, continuing to share information with the industry. Thank you, David. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye.